Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Today's broadcast is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years. Leeds and Son has their location on El Paseo and also their store in the Pro Shop at Bighorn. Bighorn Properties, representing both buyers and sellers in a personal way since the team is totally vested in our community. They are results-oriented, and their record speaks for themselves. Back Nine Greens, who have designed works of art for celebrities, commercial golf operations, and the best artificial turf design for your home. Their professionalism and service is world-renowned. And Corliss Estate Wines, where they have a reverence for old-world techniques, using new-world fruit, which sets their wines apart, and available to you in both the poorhouse and the steakhouse here at Bighorn. We talk often about the twists and turns that have brought us all to this point in our lives. And these stories have all been different in their own way, but today's story is truly unique. Vince Ellie is the real deal, an unquestioned patriot, a gentleman who has represented our country in war and peace, a member of the Blue Angels, and still active in supporting our community and our country in charitable giving and supporting our troops. I am really excited for you to hear, in his own words, a story that has twists and turns and ups and downs, but these were from 10 feet off the ground to 4,000 feet. Hang on to your seats as I welcome Vince Dinelli, whose story starts in Chicago, Illinois. Vince, start us on your journey. Good morning, Marty. Well, I was born in Chicago. In sixth grade, we moved to Skokie, Illinois, and I went finished grade school there and went to Niles Township High School, which was the, the only high school in Skokie at the time. Graduated from there and uh, went to the University of Illinois. When I was at the University of Illinois in the summertime when I was a sophomore, one of my friends said, let's go out to the air show at Glenview Naval Air Station. We can get beer, and they, won't eat, they don't even cart us there. And I said, I'm in. So away we went, and lo and behold, the Blue Angels uh, were, were flying. And of course, they ended the air show, as we always do. And I was so thrilled watching that air show and just amazed at the, at the pilots. And I said, I think I want to be a jet pilot. So when I got back to uh, Illinois, I found the Marine Corps PLC program where you went to two 12-week sessions in the summer. If you passed the flight physical, you could go to the Naval Flight School in Pensacola, Florida. So I did that, passed the flight physical, and went to flight school in Pensacola, Florida. Vince, again, it's interesting how one particular event can change your whole life. And this sounds like one of those times that it just really gave you a purpose, gave you a, something that you wanted to do, and, and for the rest of your life, dictated to a certain degree how that life was going to take off. 
Well, exactly. Had I not done that, uh, my whole history would be different. Tell me about those first early years. Tell me a little bit about mom and dad, things that you were involved in. Well, I didn't want to leave Chicago and move to Skokie, but my dad was a a world-class handball player. He met this guy, Bob Kendler, who was uh, the biggest builder in Skokie, Illinois, and they became friends, and he was an avid handball player. My dad bought a house from him in Skokie. We moved there, and his other friend that worked for Kendler was Gus Lewis. And my dad and Gus Lewis won the World Doubles Handball Championship uh, one year. And uh, that's how how we ended up in Skokie. And in those days, people are enjoying pickleball and they enjoy racquetball. But at that time, handball, that was a rugged sport for those guys at that time. Oh, yeah. Dad was in great shape. What kind of jobs did you have when you were a kid? Because for most of us, and I'm sure you're the same, if you wanted to get a new baseball glove or you wanted something, you had to go out and earn some money. What kind of stuff did you end up doing to make some money? After high school, I was a lifeguard for two years at a a huge pool, Wayland Pool. Then I worked for uh, Dan Rostenkowski in Chicago, who was a big Chicago politician. Of course, then my summers uh, after my sophomore year were taken up in Quantico, Virginia, where I had to go for 12 weeks of uh, basically Marine basic school. This is something you signed up for. How old were you when you first went? And tell me a little bit about what you had to go through when you got there. Well, it was my, uh, my sophomore year summer, my sophomore and junior years. And you went to, uh, you flew into Quantico, Virginia, first plane ride I'd ever been on. And it's basically uh, Marine Corps boot camp. We did everything, you know, from all the force marching to firing on weapons and the, and the firing range. There was quite an attrition rate. It's probably, the first, the first uh, group was probably 40% quit. I hung in there for both uh, both terms, and then my senior year, graduated, was commissioned as second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps, and off to Pensacola, Florida, for flight school. It's ironic. Here is your first plane ride, uh, and you're going, <laughs> and you're going to this flight school that I find interesting by itself. The other people were about your age. Was there a wide range of people? And certainly, I would think they came from all over the country. Is that correct? Oh, yes. And everyone was the same. We were all sophomores in college because that's how the, how the two uh, sessions went, sophomore and junior year, then, you, then graduation. I met guys from everywhere, still still keep in touch with a few of them. Interesting. I think certainly yours is a unique circumstance. But I think, again, when it was at a time when people went into the service, there certainly was a draft at that time. You ended up becoming friends with people that you may never have talked to except for this experience, and you find out indifferences were a lot the same, were working for the same goal, and they become lifelong friends. Yes, well, the draft was two years. program I was in for aviation was five years. You had signed up for five years. And, you know, for the flying, I didn't mind that at all. Um, so it worked out quite well for me. For people who don't know of that time, because there certainly aren't young people don't have to go through any of these sorts of things now, at least voluntarily, what 
kind of a program because for 40% of them to drop out because they just couldn't handle it, either the physicality or, or whatever, the dedication, whatever, this is really pretty strenuous. This is pretty tough oh, stuff. It was. It was forced marches, wake us up at uh, 2 in the morning to go on uh, night reconnaissance marches. And, and um, well, a lot of the guys didn't. Uh, and of course, I didn't either know what it really was till I got there. Fortunately, I, I got through it. And so now you've gotten through that first portion of it. Now what's next? What, what's the next step in this process? Then you go to another session in your junior, my junior year summer. All the guys that had been couldn't make it uh, are gone. So the second session, most everyone uh, made it probably, probably only 10% uh, dropped out. When you come back home, you do this in the summer. When you come back home, what do your friends say? What have you been doing this summer? What's been going on? What, how, how does that all work? Because you're starting to do things that they've never even dreamed of doing. How do they accept this experience that you're going through, your friends back home? They were a little bit in awe when I told them what we did. A couple of the guys, some good friends of mine that were pretty athletic, joined themselves. That was good to see. And in my fraternity house, we had about four of us that, uh, that went into that program. Well, you were a recruiting poster now when you came back home. And again, pretty romantic stuff. I mean, this is, uh, you know, for people who hadn't been out of Skogie or, or Chicago, this is pretty heady stuff that you're coming back and telling stories about. Oh, yes. Yeah. And then I couldn't wait for graduation to go to flight school. And so you graduated, you go to flight school, and for all of us that are also in awe of this experience, what does that look like? It was quite a sight, uh, driving into Naval Air Station, Pensacola, and seeing the carrier parked out there. Um, I was just in awe, and uh, I couldn't wait to get flying. When I got there, this lieutenant commander called off a bunch of names to meet and we didn't have enough math. I didn't have enough math in college. Had a college degree, of course, so we had to go to the six-week uh, school from the University of Florida and get an aeronautical engineering degree, and then we could start flying. <laughs> and well, I never studied so hard in my life for those six weeks. What college did you go to? So University of Illinois, now you think, okay, I'm ready to fly, and they say it's a math issue here, and you have to go and study. And as you said, you never wanted to study math more than you did since, I'm sure. You get out of the math class, and now are you ready to fly? Yes. What does that look like? I mean, they don't plop you down in, a, in the cockpit. How, what kind of training do you have to go through before you even get to sit in there? Well, there's about two weeks of ground school, learning about the airplane and, and uh, how to control it. This is a little T-34. It's like a Cessna single engine. We were all thrilled just to get into the sky. And that's, uh, that's where you start. When you finish uh, basic flight school, you, uh, you go to uh, advanced props which is, at the time, was a T-28. And it was a very powerful uh, uh, single-engine airplane, and that was advanced uh, props. And that was at a place called Softly Field in, in, uh, out, out, outside of Pensacola. When you finish advanced props, 
and you go to everyone wanted to be a jet pilot of course but there's only so many openings and it goes your flight grades in your class number one gets his pick and so on down and two so on down the line and uh everybody wants to go jets but there aren't openings for 30 guys and when I graduated, fortunately, I was number one in my class. I got I got to go to Jets, and then you go to either Beeville, Texas, or Kingsville, Texas. This is way back when. It's a little changed now. Then you go to that is basic Jets, and then from there you go to advanced Jets. And when you finish that, this is about an eighteen month program. When you're finished, uh, you're assigned to a squadron in the fleet. It's a process. Congratulations for being number one and getting to make your choice. What was unique about these places in Texas that made them the place that you went to and, and trained and did all this? Was there anything unique about that area that allowed that to be the case? Yes, there was. The Beeville and Kingsville had vast areas that uh, you could We learned gunnery, uh, bombing, strafing, rockets, everything. They had enough area outside the base uh, uh, to do all this. Pensacola didn't didn't have that that kind of uh, of massive area to do those things. When we see when we saw movies like The Right Stuff and things like that, is that where a lot of that training, the sound barrier and things like that took place down there also, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the airplane was a supersonic airplane that we uh, finished up in an advanced jets. Not very supersonic, but just enough. <laughs> and ironically, it was the uh, the Grumman F F11. That's what I flew on my first year in the Blue Angels, the same airplane. So I was pretty familiar with it. So you get down there, and there is 30 of you. You end up being one of the first in your group. You get to make your choice. Now you're going to the Jets not the football team, but you're actually doing the real deal. You're living your dream. Yes. What does living your dream look like? Is it everything that you thought it would be at the start? And then so. I mean, I was just thrilled to be in the airplane. I, I couldn't wait until the next morning when we could climb in and, and do whatever the training syllabus demanded. How long does it take for you to really start feeling comfortable? Do you do this for six months? Do you do this? How long is this training in Texas? Yeah, advanced is about six months. Uh, six, depending upon the weather, of course, six, seven months. And it culminates with, uh, with uh, landing on the aircraft carrier. That's the, that's the final step. We get 12, uh, 12 touch and goes and then 12 arrested landings. Okay, I'm going to ask this one question probably 10 more times in our conversation. Is there any fear or trepidation or anything in when you're first doing this? Of course. <laughs> I mean, the adrenaline must be something. When you see the carrier in dock, it's huge and of course we 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 did a walkthrough and showed us the resting land gear landing gear and etc and man, i said this piece of cake this thing's huge but, but when you go out for your first one and make that final turn in looks like a postage stamp out there in the water and so 
now you become proficient because there's no other choice. <laughs> if you're not proficient, is there now another cut of people during this process or does everybody that goes into this process kind of go on because they've really gotten to? Most everybody does. There are always a few that couldn't land on the carrier or couldn't do the the gunnery portion of it. A very small number would uh, would quit. You're, again, living this dream. Six months later, now you're out of this particular period of time. What's the next step? You get assigned to a squadron. And I was assigned to uh, VMFA 211 at uh, El Toro, California. I was thrilled to go there. Of course, the base isn't there anymore. That was a squadron we flew, the A-4 Skyhawk. And fabulous, fabulous uh, little airplane. I shouldn't say little, it was a fabulous airplane. Then from there, about uh, eight months later, we we were assigned to Vietnam. And you knew that was probably where you were going to go during this training thing, because that's what was going on at the time. I mean, so that doesn't come as any big surprise, I wouldn't think. Correct. During this period of time, you guys, we see this again in movies, and for most of us, that's what we, that's our experience of this. You guys are rock stars, are you not? Maybe it's not like when you finally get to the Blue Angels and we'll hit on that, but what's your feeling about what it is? Just your patriotic duty, this is what you're supposed to be doing. What's this feeling of yours now that with a squadron and you're about to go on to the next part of your life? Well, all fighter pilots have a little bit of a swagger. I will say that, but we were we were excited. We wanted to serve our country and uh, to do the best we could. We had no idea what everything entailed in uh, Vietnam. All we had were briefings, but uh, we were all excited to go. Now you're over in Vietnam. You've been well-trained. You want to serve your country. And again, it's a different era, an era in which things are changing in the country too, unfortunately, about supporting these sorts of programs. What's your feeling when you go over there? They just put you in and they give you instructions and you go out and do your job? Or How does this all work? Yes, you get, get assigned missions uh, each day. But it quickly became apparent that uh, we were fighting a limited war in Vietnam and our enemy was not fighting in a limited war. That's the first thing you learn in, uh, in basic school in the war colleges, never fight a limited war. And it was being run by politicians in Washington. All the, we, we could have won that war in three months had we been, been able to take out Hanoi, but we weren't able to do that. All the targets were selected, and uh, they, knew, they knew where we were going as well as we did. And it, it didn't really hit me till we got home when there was, there was such a protest about the Vietnam War. It was very uncomfortable. How many missions did you, did you have in Vietnam? I flew 228 missions. Thank you. Um, so what was the morale like? And I really didn't think we were going to this way, but that's how these conversations go. What was the morale like over there for you guys fighting a war with 
kind of your hands hit, tied behind your back? Well, initially, you know, we were we were we were very uh, thrilled to be there and figured that you know we could win this thing. But then, after a while, it became apparent that <laughs> Washington didn't want to, or and we were unable to do it with the targets we were uh, we were given. As it progressed, it became increasingly difficult. So you come back, you see this attitude in, in the country at the time that, that there isn't as much support as maybe when you're flying these missions or certainly when you went over there excited. You come back, did you feel, why are we doing this? What's going on? How, how, what was your feeling when you came back? Well, initially they told us when you... Uh, don't wear your uniform on the way back when you, we all went to, uh, most of us were San Francisco first. They said, do not wear your uniform. Don't tell anyone you've been to Vietnam. And we, we couldn't quite understand it. But then I could see, um, when I got there, I was, uh, I was sitting down in civilian clothes and this, uh, Lance Corporal came walking by about, five, six, seven chairs down in the waiting area. And this this uh, long-haired gentleman and his girlfriend said, did you just come back from Vietnam? And he said, yes. And they threw their coffee on him. And uh, then they got up and came towards me. And <laughs> I didn't care. I just, I gave him one healthy punch to the head and knocked him down went over to the Lance Corporal and told him, you know, go change your clothes and get out of here. But that's that's what was going on when we got back. Did this make you at all cynical? Because this has to be a rude awakening. You're willing to give up your life for your country. You're doing what you're, you've been trained to do. And now you've come back and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of appreciation. That's true. It was it was demoralizing. You know, I was on my way back to another uh, squadron. So, so now you get to another squadron. What's your next assignment? I asked for, got assigned to Marine Corps Fighter Weapons School. We didn't have a Top Gun at that time, but it's the same kind of thing. I was an instructor there for about four or five months, and then made the application for the Blue Angels and. So you make an application. I am sure there's more to it than just making an application. So there's a process that you need to get through to become a Blue Angel. Yes. Tell us about that process. Well, the, we got thousands of applications each year. Uh, there are some requirements, 1,500 jet uh, fighter pilot hours. And... Uh, the the Blue Angels select their own pilots. No one ever gets assigned to the Blue Angels. So it's all based on your flying ability. And it's like golf. If they don't know the ability of the guy, they know someone who does, the squadron he's been in. And they narrow down the applications to a final 25. And then those 25 are invited to air shows, see how they mingle with people, and then it gets down to about 12. Then we do some flight tests, get them up in the airplane, see if they can fly upside down. From that group, we, there's about six finalists, and we take them to air shows for the last month, let them see everything, interact with them, see how they interact with people. 
It's all based on flying ability. There's thousands to six to how many every year? Two. Wow. There's five Navy pilots and one Marine Corps pilot. Of course, I represented the Marine Corps, so there was only one. One spot available to 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 anybody. Yes. And you were the person. To the whole Marine Corps, yes. Wow. Congratulations. Let me just go back a little bit. Uh, we watched this new Top Gun movie. It was so wildly popular this last summer. You were there. You lived this kind of stuff in a process that is very similar to what Top Gun is today. Was that close to what happens? Is that, I mean, I understand it's dramatically enhanced for, for the movies, but is it fairly realistic about what goes on? Oh, yes. The flying scenes were fabulous. I mean, the, there was no uh, there was no artificial stuff there. There was great flying scenes. If you remember the one scene where the pilot pulled nine Gs for about 15 seconds and then he passed out, that's, that's, he should have passed out. That's, <laughs> that, that's, that's a feat, even with the G suit on. But then Tom Cruise made it, of course. And that was an interesting segment. When you watch this, our hearts are pounding. It's just, we don't know whether the guy is going to make it. And it's really, when you're watching it as a guy that's done this, as I said in the intro, you're the real deal. What's your feeling as you sit in a movie theater watching this? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I really did. <laughs> did it bring back uh, me fond memories? and Every minute. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so now you've made the Blue Angels, which is a feat in itself. I mean, the odds are, as we've already noted, it's quite something, especially as a Marine with one spot open. You're elated. This is truly that dream of when you watched them when you were a child, and you said, this is what I want to do, and very few people in life get to do exactly what they want to do. What was your feeling when you got accepted? That day you got accepted. What was the feeling? Historically, the Blue Angels play a little joke on you. You get a set of orders. And of course, my set of orders said, report to the Blue Angels. And I was ecstatic. And then I get a call from one of the team members who kind of liked me to help me get on. Norm Gandia was his name. And he said, Vince, well, you better hold off. Uh, I think that uh, there's a problem here. Then they try to <laughs> they try to find some little dirt on you, you know, and say, "Well, there was this there was this admiral's daughter you dated, or something like the in the Top Gun movie," and uh, then they make you wait a day. And, and <laughs> I told my my uh, skipper about it, and he said, "We've got orders. I'm sending you. They're not going to cancel this." <laughs> and uh, it, it's all a joke. And then they, then they come back and all of them, all the teams together, and say, welcome aboard. Well, for that 24 hours, though, you didn't know oh, whether it was a joke. Oh, did not. Of course, <laughs> the guy that replaced me, I did the same thing <laughs> to him. So now you are a Blue Angel. Is there a ceremony here, or, or is it just, okay, let's go? Well, you, you join the team, and then we go to winter training uh, right here in El Centro, California, where we still have winter training. And we fly uh, two or three flights a day, six days a week for three months. 
And we start out at uh, at uh, six feet. And we move it into five feet to four feet, and then the last month we uh, fly at thirty six inches, three feet apart. We do a month of practice air shows. When that's finished, uh, the end of March, uh, we start the air show season. The first year is quite interesting, you know, learning all the maneuvers and and uh, on the Blue Angels we don't wear G suits like you see in Top Gun. Can't have that. Uh, pressure pad inflating when you're flying that close it can't move your hand you have to be very steady we fly with 40 pounds downward pressure on the stick it's full nose down trim so you're always pulling the airplane into the formation and if there's ever a problem you relax and you'll you'll drop out of the formation the first overhead we did at uh, at four G's, uh, I had a little gray out, and I said, oh, "My goodness, how how the hell do we do this every day?" But you build up a tolerance for it, and after a couple of weeks, four uh, G's is nothing. Tell me, for the novices, what's a gray out? You've heard of the blackout, of course. Well, before you blackout, you gray out, like a little, okay. dark, a little darker than the color of this wall, and everything just kind of turns gray before you pass out. 36 inches. So you're doing this four feet, three feet. You get to 36 inches. You said you have to relax. How does one relax at 36 inches from another airplane? Well, it's 35 minutes of sheer concentration. And you trust in your ability. You trust in your abilities. And, you know, now we have exercises for concentration and we try to do that. I mean, this has to be just something that you feel so confident in your abilities because you don't have time to question things when you're doing this. Well, you have confidence in the other pilots also. That's why uh, the Blues select their own pilots can never hold 36 inches perfectly all the time. You always might move in six, out six, and when we hit bumps, everybody hits the same thing. You just don't fight it. If you move in a little bit, just gradually move it back out. During this process, everybody goes through this. I mean, there are very few people during, the, during this training. Once you become a Blue Angel, uh, there's no dropouts at this point, are there? I say no. But I mean, over the years, there have been a couple. Everything looked good in the uh, initial uh, collection. There's a time when you actually have to do it, and you have to know where you are in space all the time. And you can't teach that. That's inherent in the pilot. When you pull up and you, all you see is blue sky, you have to know a 360-degree roll is going to put you right back where you started, not over outside somewhere. Spatial orientation, you can't teach. It's just, it's just there. And there a couple guys just couldn't do it. And do they almost self-select to drop out then because they realize it themselves? Nobody has to tell them that they can't do it. It's just, yes. it's just something. Yes, and, and it's sad when it happens. Like I said, it's only happened a couple times in the history of the blues. Now you're going to go do air shows. Where was your first air show, and how did that feel? The very first air show was right there at El Centro, California. We do a we do an air show before we leave for uh, Pensacola, Florida, and uh, absolutely thrilling to you know have all those crowds out there watching. It was a great first performance. 
how many of those shows then did you do in the first year? First year, we did a little over 220 air shows. They've cut down substantially since then, but we were either flying to an air show, practicing, or in an air show. And we'd always do an arrival air show, and then an air show on uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, wherever it was. On our way home, we sometimes did one-stop uh, air shows on Monday. Then we'd always do some in Pensacola, Florida, three a year in Pensacola, Florida. And it was, uh, it was quite a schedule. Personally, I lived in Seattle for quite a period of time. And, and during uh, Seafair, which was the big celebration up there, the Blue Angels had come up there and do it. And I remember they would do that early week kind of a flyby. And people would be out on the bridges and everything to watch you guys. I mean, it was, you can't explain it until you see it. I mean, oh, it was, we, just, we love that air show. That, they treated us so well there. It was just a, just a great venue. I'm surprised that many in your first year, and as you said, they've scaled back significantly. When you're doing that many air shows in the kind of process that you have to be in in each to be successful, you can't just do it on automatic pilot. You've got to be, for 220 days, you've got to be on. After that year, do you need to decompress? Do you need to just take some time off? I don't care how good you are. There's pressure involved. Well, of course. Well, we take, we take most of December off, and that's when, when the selection process starts, and we bring in the new members right after the first of the year we head for El Centro, California. How many years... Were you with the Blues? Is that the norm? Is there, is there a time limit that you have to because they need to cycle people through? And It's either two or three years, uh, you know, depending, like you said, depending on the cycle. Unfortunately, one of my very dear friends got killed. Bill Worley was his name, hell of a fighter pilot, and I stayed uh, an extra year. Give us a little feeling about what it's like to be a Blue Angel as you come into town. We don't need to hear all the stories, Vince, but give us a sense of what it's like when you fly into a town and you're putting on a show. You're talking a civilian town or a military air base? Give us both. We always were greeted fabulously by whatever air show we went to. And, of course, they, they would schedule us for dinners and speeches every single night, so our time really wasn't our own. Then, depending upon where we were flying, we would do press conferences. I always wanted to go to, if there was a VA hospital, I always wanted to go visit that, if not a children's hospital. And we all did that for two days of the time we were there, different different places. We always closed the air show. We were always the last ones uh, uh, in the venue. There were a lot of other people there. And then there were parties every night. <laughs> and they'd all try to out-drink us, of course. But, you know, we get to sleep in until 10 o'clock in the morning, so there was no problem there. At a military air base, it was great. We we owned the officers' club. Always, always, at that time, the O-clubs were in full swing, not so much now. They always treated us very, very well at the, at the military air bases. Same type thing, usually at the, the commanding officer's house for dinner, some of the other nights uh, we'd interact with the rest of the base, but love those air shows flying down the runway where we had a white stripe upside down 10 feet off the ground. It was quite a thrill. 
I can't even imagine, but I'll take your word for it. Um, you were also uh, a great recruiting tool for the service. Oh, yes. Because that's one of the, the reasons to have a Blue Angels, is to give some really positive uh, reinforcement about and to hopefully get a kid like you when you were watching that show to do exactly what you did. I'm sure that that was a big part of what you wanted to accomplish, too. Oh, yes. The recruiting is the major part of it. Um, like, we always fly an air show in Olathe, Kansas, every year. There's not much Navy presence uh, there. And when we would fly, we'd always recruit some guys that wanted to go to flight school and all the other areas that the Navy didn't have a presence in. This is a very big recruiting tool having the Blue Angels there. Those three years, what's your greatest recollections? Give me a couple of highlights, or lowlights for that matter. <laughs> but how about some story, a couple of really good stories about those three years? Well, probably the biggest one, and I'm sure you've heard it, is when we had a, a mid-air flying the air show at San Francisco, and I had to eject into the San Francisco Bay. Is this during the show? Well, this is during the show. Okay, during the show. Now, you have to eject over San Francisco Bay. As I understand it, that plane then goes into the bay. Correct. How much are those planes, Vince? <laughs> oh, they're a lot less than they are today. Let me put it that way. <laughs> this had to be pictures in the front page of the newspaper. And I'll tell you a little side story about that one. When we pulled off, I was about 100 feet above the water. The collision we had sliced off the tail of my airplane, and uh, they don't fly too well without a vertical stabilizer. I ejected into the, and the chute swung twice, and I was in the water. Of course, the plane went down. From the air show van advantage, everyone thought I went in with the airplane because I was so close to the water. So search and rescue was trying to get organized to come find me. And I was in the water for uh, 29 minutes. Supposedly, you're supposed to get hypothermia in about 10 minutes. But my heart was pumping pretty good. But I did learn one very important thing. I know why no one can escape from Alcatraz now. Search and rescue uh, uh, finally saw me and landed, air taxied over, and I got in there, went to the hospital, got checked out and flew the air show the next day. A little interesting side story. Uh, John Brody was the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers at the time. 20 years later, I meet him in Park City, Utah. He's playing in the senior golf tournament. And we talked, and I had a party at my house for all the pros. He and I kind of became friends. And the next year, I invited him to stay at my house. He did, and you know, he saw some of my pictures. And he said, you know, I got a story about the Blue Angels. I threw for 400 yards and five touchdowns, and the headline in the paper was the Blue Angel pilot crashes in San Francisco Bay. And I said, really? I said, you know who that was, John? And he said, no. And I said, you're looking at him. Any other big recollections of that three years that you were there? Well, when we did our, our European tour, it was just fabulous. Uh, we did the Paris Air Show, Aviano, Italy, Inserlik, Turkey, Rome, many, many other 
other stops, but that was uh, the highlight. And I imagine over there, they really treated you like the rock stars that you deserved to be. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Getting there was interesting. You know, of course, we couldn't go nonstop, so we had to aerial refuel twice. And out in the middle of the Atlantic, if you didn't get plugged in, <laughs> that was the last we'd see of you. But everything worked out Everybody fine. Everybody made it. Now you've got three years with the Blue Angels. Like mo many athletes that I've talked to, you know, it's tough to ever have that feeling again. You, when you leave that kind of adrenaline, that kind of notoriety, that kind of lifestyle, it's hard to replace it. You can't. It's impossible. So, what comes next? Well, after that, there really isn't much. When I, when I left the military, I went to fly for American Airlines. And I got furloughed after a year, and I was furloughed for three years. Actually went down to Pensacola, Florida, and stayed with the boys in our Blue Angel house there, waiting to get back. After a year, I went back to Chicago and started my own business, borrowed some money, some Italian friends that don't loan money, and things worked out fine. And then I quit American Airlines. Jimmy Colbert and I uh, did a deal down in Florida, and became fast friends with him. Then came the uh, Bighorn deal. Tell me about your wine, because you're very famous for your wine collection. And my sense of that wine collection is it started back in the Chicago area. When did you get so interested? And tell people a little bit about that. Well, when I was on the Blue Angels, uh, my Uncle Joe Paterno, he wasn't my uncle, but I used to call him Uncle Joe, a very good friend of the family, owned a bunch of liquor stores. And, uh, of course, in Chicago, I invited the whole family and anybody who wanted to come to the air show. We had very special seats for them. And Uncle Joe said, oh, you wanted, in his uh, little voice, I want to get you started saving some wine. And he said, this is what you're going to buy. And he showed me Chateau Lafitte. I knew Chateau Lafitte, but didn't know much about it. And he said, I'll just send you the bill and you pay it. So he started buying Chateau Lafitte for me. At that time, you know, we're talking uh, uh, 1968, 69. Kept stockpiling it for me. When I finally got settled uh, a little bit later, uh, went to talk to him. My goodness, he had all kinds of cases of wine. I was living in Oakbrook at the time. Built a nice big wine cellar for it. And that's how I started collecting Chateau Lafitte. And then when I finally started drinking it, I said, wow, this is, this is the finest Bordeaux in the world. So I kept buying it after that. Unfortunately, Uncle Joe passed away and his kids didn't want to take over the liquor stores. I found some other contacts that he had recommended to me. And I kept collecting Chateau Lafitte, went all the way back to 1879. And I missed a few of the war years, but I had every other bottle um, to 2000, which is on display now over at the canyons. And if you get a chance, it's very nicely displayed over there. And Vince has been nice enough to let the club to show off these wines. It's worth a look for sure. Uh, after you've now been with the Blue Angels, you're leaving that. You've been with Colbert down in Florida and done a business project with him. What brings you to Bighorn? And 
give us some of your early impressions of R.D. Hubbard. Well, I was at uh, Butler National Golf Club where I belonged in Chicago, and, and they told me I had a phone call from Jim Colbert. And I took it, and Jim said, R.D. has a deal. And I said, what is it? He said, it's a golf course in Palm Desert, California. And I said, where's Palm Desert? He says, outside of Palm Springs, you have to come out. So I said, okay. So I made plans to fly out there. I knew R.D. Hubbard, but I didn't really know him. We'd been playing in Jim's tournament in Manhattan, Kansas for, you know, six, eight years. And I'd seen him every year, you know, to say hello, how are you kind of thing. And when I got to uh, Palm Desert, then, uh, you know, well, I saw R.D. again and really, really got to know him. And the deal he put together was uh, quite spectacular. As you know, Westinghouse owned it. And R.D. arranged a deal to buy it from Westinghouse and got uh, eight investors, and Colbert and myself included. And, uh, of course, D. was the major investor and bought it from Westinghouse. And just my first interactions with R.D., he wanted to take care of the members first. He wanted every amenity he could possibly give to uh, to the members, first of all, a, a world-class golf course. Can the mountains went, in, went through some changes under his guide. Turned out very well. And then, of course, uh, he arranged for the purchase of the canyons, which was a similar kind of deal. Safeco uh, didn't want to be in the golf course business, and R.D. arranged to buy it. When you meet R.D., He's uh, he seems like a like a hardliner, but he really has everyone's best interest at heart. And in, when I saw the canyons, and of course Jim Colbert was instrumental in getting uh, Fazio to design it. And then, if you remember, uh, we had the skins game at the mountains, where the pros were here. And when R.D. got uh, the battle at Bighorn with Sergio and Tiger. I was just a stroke of genius. It put us on the map. And we started selling lots that were 250,000 and eventually increased substantially over the years. D was all about providing amenities for the members. And if you look around and see what you have, the spa was built. All those tennis courts, the pickleball courts, the canyon steakhouse. Last but not least is a $70 million new clubhouse. It was all about taking care of the members. And we we fully supported that as investors. Early on, we had uh, we actually had votes. But as we progressed, <laughs> D, uh, D took over, and rightfully so. He did a, did a spectacular job. He certainly did. Uh, and uh, again, sometimes people... Uh, may have questioned the process, but they never p questioned the results. And uh, that's what, you know, we're results-oriented, and that's what we have today, and we're all grateful and thankful to to that, to Dee, but also to that group, you being part of it, that, that brought this all together. What were some of the people that influenced your life, Vince? Well, my, my first squadron commander, Colonel Gray, was one hell of a fighter pilot. Uh, he kind of guided me through my first squadron. 
he was also instrumental in, in me applying for the for the Blue Angels. The second gentleman was uh, my great friend and mentor. His name was Zeke Cormier. And I met Zeke before um, I joined the Blue Angels. He was the leader of the Blues in 1955, a triple ace in uh, World War II, shot down 19 Japanese airplanes, fighter pilot extraordinaire. When I met him, of course, he, he had was retired, but uh, we became fast friends, and I wanted to hear all about the Blue Angels. And when when he heard, he worked for McDonnell Douglas, and when he heard we, uh, I got selected for the Blues, he <laughs> he was thrilled. And of course, we flew the the Phantom McDonnell Douglas's airplane, so I got to see him a lot. We'd see each other as much as we could over the years. He passed away, unfortunately, quite a few years ago. And, course i miss him dearly but zeke cormier was my mentor my guide and a, and a great friend also i know that you had a special relationship you know you had a excellent relationship with your mom and dad but i know you told me a story about your mom uh that i'd like you to tell as part of this she made the best spaghetti sauce that there was, and the guys at the Blue Angels wanted some spaghetti sauce for a dinner. Do I have the story kind of? When your first year on the team, you're, you're called a newbie, okay? And the newbies have to have a dinner for all the friends of the Blue Angels, and there's usually 100 people there. Then the new guys get introduced to the people in town, etc. We rented, we had, the previous team had rented this house, which we, kept in the in the family for quite a few years the new the newbies would cook there and have open house for all the friends in, in Pensacola so of course when we flew in Chicago um <laughs> mom had cooked for us and some of the guys had uh, uh, had her meatballs and and pasta and they said Vince you got to go get your mother's uh, Italian dinner. You know, we want the meatballs and the pasta. I said, well, okay. So I called my mom and I said, Mom, I've got a tall order for you. I need about 150 meatballs and probably three gallons of your uh, spaghetti sauce. She said, you're kidding. I said, no, well, we have to put on a dinner here. She said, okay. So I said, I gave her the date I'd be flying in to pick it up. And in the in the Phantom, they had some ammo cans and the nose wheel well, and they were outside, so they'd freeze really good. So we took the ammo cans out, and I brought them with me, and then we poured all the the sauce and the meatballs and the two ammo cans, put them back in the nose wheel well, and flew back to Pensacola. And of course, when I got there, they were as hard as this tabletop here, and uh, thawed them out, had our newbie dinner. Thanks to mom. How long did it take you to get from Pensacola to your mom's house and back? Yeah, a little over an hour. If you ever want some spaghetti sauce, now you know who to ask for the spaghetti sauce, which, by the way, he'll make every uh, on occasion here at the desert. And if you ever get a chance to try it, he's got mom's recipe. Um, what sort of qualities? I know that after you left the service, you did go to Utah. And in Park City, you were a legend both on the slopes 
you had a restaurant and what did you look for after your experience in the service? What qualities did you look for in people that came to work for you or with you? Well, loyalty is very important and uh, loving what they do. Dedication follows that if they if they really enjoy their job. And I'd, I'd look for people that were interested in... Uh, in the in the Mid Mountain Lodge and its history, et cetera, and uh, it worked out quite well. That's uh, that's who I hired. Always had good people, fortunately. And what qualities do you look for in friends? In friends, <laughs> uh, that's a good one. I wasn't expecting that. A friend is a very special person. I think to be a good friend, you must understand. Well, uh, your other friend, and uh, that's pretty important. Friends can argue and disagree, but in the end, you defend each other with a veracity that's unknown to other people, and uh, that's what makes friends is, is defending them. With all of your accomplishments, with everything that you've done, which is a movie in itself, uh, what drives you today? Well, the memories. The memories help, you know. Being the best in in the world, what you do, even for a short period of time. But today, I just love Bighorn. I, I can't wait to get here. I have great friends here, such as yourself. And uh, the, the people we play golf with, uh, just a pleasure. And uh, this, is, this is my favorite place. Last question. What would you tell the 20-year-old Vince Dinelli today? Do everything the same as you did. Just be a little further apart in the San Francisco air show. <laughs> Vince, thank you. I know that you are, even with all your accomplishments, you're a humble guy. You don't like talking about yourself. I know this wasn't high on your list of things that you needed to accomplish at this point in your life, but I do think that these stories are important because you're part of the fabric of this club. You're part of the fabric of this community. I just want you to touch on one more thing before we say goodbye, because I know it's important to you. And that is for our veterans and our wounded soldiers and pilots and everything. I know you're very involved in this, and I want people to know about it and maybe a little bit about how they can become involved in supporting it like you do. I was honored to be the president of the Blue Angels Foundation for five years. It was uh, supposed to be a, a, a two-year terms. But we, we, we had things going so well that uh, I stayed for five years. And we supported uh, Freedom Station in San Diego, California. When the wounded veterans missing arms, legs, sometimes both legs, they get a certain amount of time at Balboa Hospital to uh, rehab. When that's done, they're given honorable discharge in their uh, pension. A lot of them join the military to leave home. so. Quite a few don't really have a place to go. Freedom Station houses them, and we have a PTSD program. Because they, you know, 
22 a year were committing suicide. We've got that down to 17, 18 now and try to do better. But we take these guys and try to teach them a vocation, get them to interact with the rest of their wounded veterans, basically save their lives. When I go there, you see, <laughs> it's going to break me up now. <clears throat> when I see these guys missing uh, arms and legs and the attitude that they have, all they have had to face and what they have yet to face, uh, it's inspiring beyond anything I can imagine. So I have a very soft spot in my heart for these guys. And in addition to that, we... Uh, we help other uh, organizations uh, tunnel the towers that that helps uh, the wounded veterans, and the Blue Angel Foundation. Uh, uh, I want to uh, people supported here. Bighorn has been a great supporter of the Blue Angel Foundation, and every penny that we generate here goes uh, directly to the warriors, to the wounded veterans. There, no one has any perks whatsoever. We continue our program every year. We have a golf tournament, which we haven't been able to have because of COVID for the last two years. Got some people here, you know, that have really supported the, the foundation, Murray Hall in particular. But that's what we do. And uh, there's four years ago, we had a new president take over, and he's done a fabulous job in taking over from me. And they made me the president emeritus, which is quite an honor. So I'm proud of that. And if people want to become involved, is there a place that they can go and, and get more information? Uh, yes, they can, they can look at Freedom Station online. Just uh, do that in or look at the Blue Angel Foundation. And again, Vince, thank you so much for doing this. I hope uh, it wasn't as painful as you may have thought it was going to be. Uh, but again, for our community and for our country, thank you very much for your service. Well, thank you for inviting me for this, uh, Marty. Thanks, Vince, for sharing your extraordinary life with us. You are certainly an integral part of the history of our community, but also for dedicating your life to the betterment of our country. It has been a great ride you have taken us on. Thanks to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wine for their support that allows us to bring you these great stories. We will be back soon to bring you more interesting people and their extraordinary stories on the Bighorn Podcast. Thanks for listening.